Welcome to the What's Up with Dots podcast, the documentary podcast for all of us. I'm Tony Bell, the creator and host. From the guide to indigenous land and territorial acknowledgements for cultural institutions. Suggestions for creating your land or territorial acknowledgement. Indigenous land or territorial acknowledgements should be motivated by a genuine respect for indigenous nations and communities. Reaching out to local indigenous communities to ask how they would like to be acknowledged is crucial. This is the most respectful approach as it recognizes the sovereignty of indigenous nations to define their own terms. Acknowledgements are a collaborative process to be formed through continuous relationships with indigenous people. An acknowledgement begins as a spoken embodied action. It is also appropriate for institutions to adopt material versions, such as a plaque or text panel. This practice should be integrated by institutional staff into the protocol of everyday proceedings, such as board meetings, gallery talks, and larger events. It is important and meaningful to have institutional representatives acknowledge the institution's legacy and to indicate reckoning and a commitment to change within the institution. Land or territorial acknowledgement statements can take many forms. The following is an example of an acknowledgement statement that could be used within a museum setting. We are gathered on the unceded land of the peoples. I ask you to join me in acknowledging the community their elders, both past and present, as well as future generations. Insert the name of the institution also acknowledges that it was founded upon exclusions and erasures of many indigenous peoples, including those on whose land this institution is located. This acknowledgement demonstrates a commitment to beginning the process of working to dismantle the ongoing legacies of settler colonialism. Cultural institutions have an obligation to support ongoing education as well as accurate and responsible representation. By harnessing institutional voices, there is a capacity to affect change into the future far beyond institutional walls. And again, this is from the Guide to Indigenous Land and Territorial Acknowledgements for cultural institutions. You can find a link to the guide on our website. The What's Up with Docs podcast is recorded on the unceded territory of the Tongva and the Chumash. A few episodes ago, I mentioned that Ronell Schubert, our producer, was born on the unceded territory of the Kickapoo, now known as Nashville, Illinois. The third major Kickapoo tribe is the Kickapoo tribe of Oklahoma, which is headquartered in McLeod, Oklahoma, and the tribal jurisdiction area is Oklahoma, Potawatomi, and Lincoln counties. Of the 2,630 enrolled tribal members, 1,856 live within the state of Oklahoma. Kickapoo comes from their word Kiwi-ga-pawa, which roughly translates into he moves from here to there. Originally from what we now know as Illinois, Missouri, through a series of broken treaties, the Kickapoo were displaced to the Plains, Texas, and finally Oklahoma. Their interaction between the Mexican Kickapoo and Oklahoma tribe remained strong. Mexican Kickapoos use the health services of the tribal clinic in McLeod, Oklahoma, and the Oklahoma Kickapoos travel for ceremonial seasons in February and March to Mexico. Currently, about 400 tribal members speak the Kickapoo language, and it is one of the few Oklahoma tribal languages spoken by children today. In this episode, I speak with vodka infuser, quilter, and coordinating producer at American documentary, America Reframed, Robert Chang. During our conversation, we chat about his PhD in cultural anthropology, America Reframed's new season, 
navigating documentary in the soon-to-be post-COVID world, and get a lesson on how PBS works locally and nationally. Because keeping one's balance in the documentary world and life is one of the keys to creativity, this week's song is Janelle Monae's Tightrope. Here's our conversation, which was recorded in April 2021. So I always like to start off with um, how we met. Um, so we actually met at Big Sky and you were doing double duty that year. So we got to know each other because we were on the Doc Features jury. You and Renell were working together because you were all decision makers on the pitch panel. Big Sky Pitch. Yeah, Big Sky, Big Pitch. Was that your first time at Big Sky or had you been there before? No, that was definitely my first time at Big Sky. You have been um, incredibly productive during your um, COVID pandemic period. Um, Y'all, this this man, he makes vodka. So t- tell us about your vodka. Well, um, it was sort of a, a realization. I think it was uh, early early stages of the pandemic when like vodka was in short supply and we had a handle or two of vodka and we're and I was like oh look I have all these teas I have a sous vide I can just you know accelerate the process by which tasty flavors enter the vodka and then the vodka enters me so it's uh it was really it was really quite fun because you know you can get like szechuan peppercorn vodka which adds a very interesting kick to any bloody mary you can do like hibiscus you know it's basically like jamaica but with vodka so it was uh it was one of the things that i picked up along with sewing and other sundry domestic housebound um, activities and you know i felt very grateful that i was able to do that and it's one of those things where I'm still wrestling with the privilege through which I was able to coast out so much of the pandemic and the very uneven burdens of the pandemic Mm, Um, mm. and the kinds of responsibilities that I felt during that time, but also, you know, um, after getting COVID because I, and I have no idea how that experience was really startling too, because I was so careful because I always double masked. I didn't go out. I rarely went grocery shopping, if at all, or if I did, you know, I would be in and out. And it was, it was very strange. And it continues to anger me how 2020 has unfolded and fallen so unevenly. I mean, obviously the film industry was um, incredibly impacted by um, COVID, but then a lot of us who grew on the industry side, not, not necessarily the filmmakers, really did have uh, the privilege of being, first of all, being able to work from home and to work safely from home. There was this rise of awareness in those who are called essential workers. But I wonder, and this isn't really related to to doc talk per se, I wonder how much of that awareness is going to um, be maintained or be beneficial for those folks who have been deemed essential workers as we get back to the quote unquote normal, which really isn't a good thing. It seems almost cliched now to talk about last year as a year of reckoning. I think the the goalposts have shifted um, significantly. And I think one of the things that I have sort of come to terms with is the role that I play within a broader industry mm-hmm. in shifting the conversation, right? I don't have an outsized sense of my own agency, but I understand that my presence in the room is significant. Mm. And the goal for me is to ensure that the door continues to open more broadly and chew through fewer people and, you know, leave this place better for those who will come after us. And it's weird because usually, you know, that's how I see myself in the roles that I do. And I think that's one of the key differences potentially 
between those who sit on the industry side and those who sit on the filmmaking side. Because a filmmaker, especially an indie filmmaker, you're the one who's doing the work, you know, and you can see yourself as a part of a broader movement of film. Some of that stuff is also happening, I think, you know, with Seth's work and other people's work in the, in the field, um, sort of community-oriented media, you know, media making is culture making. But I also do think that there is still a sense of like the filmmaker, whether it's the director producer or the cinematographer, you know, like the, these projects that people are really taking on themselves as a person who's making a difference, you know, but I think within the industry, even that it just points to a broader set of systems mm -hmm. that has all of the built-in biases yes. um, and different stakeholders that are sometimes at competing odds with each other. When I say that I feel like the goalposts have shifted, I mean that it was, when I was growing up, it was all about, you know, representation on screen. You know, it was like, oh my goodness, I see, you know, an Asian American character on the next generation. And, uh, but I think now it's just sort of like, well, representation is not enough because it's like, what is the frame of the representation? What is the meaning of, you know, and I think that is starting to shift in ways that are different, significantly different. And I think these are sort of some of the outcomes of the tremendous efforts of people who have come before me, but also carrying that forward. There's a lot of Star Trek podcasts. I subscribe to about five of them, but there's this really awesome one. It's called All the Asians on Star Trek. And um, it's about all the Asians on Star Trek. And not just the folks who have been on Star Trek in front of the camera, but also some of the behind the scenes folks. Oh. But it's a great show, not only for like those of us who like really just love the Star Trek universe and like just everything that it represents and all the good that it's brought, but also like listening to it, I learned um, so much about um, Asian American like representation, particularly in on the on the acting side. He's interviewed Rosalind Chow. You know, she's she's like, you know, Keiko O'Brien on there. And it was great to hear like her history. Um, because like I always forget, like she's she's been around forever. Like she was on MASH. Like those of us who are old enough to remember MASH, when you said the comment about being happy when you saw like a, an Asian person on the next generation, like so many folks of color have that story. When my grandfather was, I think he was kind of a closet Trekkie because we used to watch it together, the the, the original series together because it would come on syndication at seven o'clock on um, Saturday night, right before Hee Haw. He loved Hee Haw. You know, he would always point out Lieutenant Uhura you know, as a black woman in space. Everyone wants to see themselves. Check out all the Asian on Star Trek. It's an awesome podcast. But I also wanted to speak to the kind of responsibility one feels when they are on the industry side. In my former job, I felt that responsibility deeply. I really felt that I needed to make sure I held that door open for folks who, and I'm beginning to kind of change my language now, instead of like saying marginalized people, I've, I'm beginning to adopt the phrasing of global majority because we are the majority who have not been privileged in the film industry. You know, I would take that extra time out for that filmmaker who clearly had a lot of talent, but maybe didn't know the ins and outs and the specifics. In that, that really was a source of conflict where I worked because there was still this unspoken rule of privileging whiteness and particularly like moneyed white men to the point that I was getting criticism for like everyday interactions with folks. They would ask me to do something and I'll say, well, I can't do that right now. I can do that in 24 hours. And then they would go above my head and I, I would get a talking to. 
And, you know, the reason why I could do that in 24 hours is because I'm doing work for these other filmmakers, too. And, like, I value them. That brings up stuff for me. Because <laughs> I'm still kind of processing. Like, I would have conversations with my former employer. Like, you may not realize it, but you're asking me to privilege whiteness. And, like, I can't do that. I am one generation out of segregation, born and raised in the South. I am not going to contribute to... There's a limited time in a day. There's limited pieces of this pie. I'm not going to give all the pieces of the pie to this person who already has like 50 pies. I said, I'm not saying I'm not going to do my work for them. It's just they will be served in the order in which received. Joyful moments, I think. When you're able to decide for yourself what to allocate your time to and what you allocate your time to is what you value in terms of putting out into the world. The irony is... Uh, I was actually reading a book with a friend of mine. We were doing a separate reading club, and it was a book by Sarah Jaffe. Work Won't Love You Back, How Devotion to Our Jobs Keeps Us Exploited, Exhausted, and Alone. Yes, okay, we will definitely put that on your page. We'll put a link to that on your page. <laughs> when I was reading it, it's really interesting, this notion of the mission, right? Um, and what the mission entails, and what the mission requires in terms of the additional costs and burdens upon people who see their responsibility as opening doors, as keeping the doors open, as opposed to, you know, doing the job, you know, hitting those metrics, like, whatever it is that's set by the system. And working creatively with that, I think, is a point of powerful activism, but it's also incredibly taxing. And I think that's one of the things that is really, you know, to segue to the more recent sort of letter of criticism against PBS. We're referring to the letter directed toward PBS from Beyond Inclusion, and we'll include a link to that on, um, on Robert's page on our website, but also recent criticism of Ken Burns asking, like, why is he given so much airtime? Because there is a finite amount of airtime on PBS, and why is he given so much? His most recent endeavor is Hemingway, but he gets six hours. The series that came out last year, Asian Americans, got five for like the 150 years of Asian American history. But Hemingway got six. One of the things that I've learned, because I've been around many blocks for <laughs> a very long time. Um, I think that was one of the things that we sort of marveled at when we first met each other. You know, we've had many past lives before our current one. And I've had the opportunity to work at very large institutions, whether it is the United Nations or the Smithsonian or in Baltimore, it was like literacy education, which is a very sort of broad and multi-tentacled thing across all sort of scales. And I think mm -hmm. PBS is like that. So from the outside, PBS looks like one entity, but there's so many different producing stations and they're all beholden to different station managers and directors. You know, so it's, it's like this really sort of, you know, I think of it as a cooperative of sorts. I was going to say messy cooperative, but, you know, all cooperatives are messy. If you've ever been in a cooperative, that's how it works. Yes. So, yeah. And so for me, what's always interesting about sort of the way in which the criticism is both very valid and needs to be articulated why that has a specific kind of purchase when it's targeted at a media entity that presumes to speak for the public, yes. right? As opposed to other kinds of entities that have co-opted a member's model that doesn't necessarily reinvest the profits of the membership back into, that have co-opted the membership model for shareholder profit. Those are the other players that wields equivalent representational space within our industry. It's not enough. There can always be more. 
the concerns voiced are incredibly valid and legit. And mm -hmm. yes, it is messed up the ways that Black voices, Indigenous voices, POC voices can be dismissed and seen as not of the quality for broadcast or doesn't speak to quote unquote our audience. In the segment, uh, Miss Rooney and her, her, her dialogue with folks, in her defense of Ken Burns, she said, well, maybe it's a question of quality. Maybe people aren't putting out good work. I screamed when I heard that, particularly when first name is Callie. She was like one of the producers on Eyes on the Prize. Literally like black talent was in the room. For the listeners out there in the ether, I am holding my head in my fingers with my fingers on my temple right now. But she was very vocal about where she stands. You know, since then she has quote unquote apologized. I haven't read it, but you know, I'm going to say quote unquote apologize because I don't, you know, who knows the sincerity of the apology. But it also made me think about her attitudes and ways of thinking are very much um, institutionalized in a lot of the work that we've had to do. Mm -hmm. People may not be vocal about it and just say, well, maybe there's that quality there or whatever, but there's still this idea, there's still this call to like still privilege certain folks. It may be done in a nicer tone, but it's the same. One of the things that I'm wrestling with most right now is what is it as working with broadcasters what does it mean to put forth something that vies for people's attention? Even the language of attention is sort of a newer way of thinking about how people watch film and television, I think. I don't think it's not, I think in the past it was like, you want your audiences. There was the Nielsen metric. It was within that consumer sort of framework. And now it's your attention, crafting of the lifestyle, approaching other ways of the consumer is in fact the product of a lot of these streamers, right? Or um, platforms that consume your, our respective attentions. And what does it mean for us to give our attention to things? And this is sort of where <laughs> I sort of geek out anthropology style and, and you know. You are Dr. Robert watching <laughs> yeah yeah and and the thing is i actually worked my field work was with buddhists and how it is that they produce use and circulate media and what kind of media technologies that they incorporate into their religious practice which is actually their bodily practice which is is actually their you know a practice of attuning their senses with a particular religious buddhist sensibility of compassion and understanding of suffering you know like all of these things and i'm just sort mm. of like well what are the ways through which we are producing attention and channeling attention and what are the technologies of attention that are being produced now and to what ends are they serving like that's something that i think about um a lot when i put on vr goggles you know or you know, like mm. why I still haven't linked up my Facebook account to my Oculus, even though, you know, that might be a losing battle soon. Talk more about the research you did. So was it Buddhist here in the United States um, or in a different country? Um, what type of Buddhism did they practice? And can you just kind of talk about some of the specifics of how they... I trained as a media anthropologist um, and an anthropologist of religion. And the Buddhists with whom I worked um, there are, I would say they're non-liberal Buddhists. Okay. And so they, but they're based in North America and they have temples all over the world. And they have one of the largest um, North American ordained community of monks and nuns, bhikshus and bhikshunis among sort of global Buddhist 
entities. They've been around since the 60s and 70s. The kinds of religious practices that they undertake are very modern in the sense that it's sort of, you can trace it back to the sort of 19th century, 18th century, late 18th century, where all of a sudden belief becomes a factor in religious practice in Asia. Mm. So like you have to believe in this stuff as well as practice it, like these notions of the precepts, which are longstanding, but factored into other other layers of uh, different kinds of notions of what a religion is, plays into these religious reform movements that produce like a religion where you would practice, you know, by meditating, where you would bow, you would recite, you know, you would do all of these things, you would study. These are all components of, of the community that I did my research with. One of the things that I realized over the course of my research was that the kinds of media that they engaged in, it was very different than the ways that I was trained to think about media as a content delivery vehicle, right? Or even the media as culture making. Like for me, like what I really saw on the ground was that media and media technologies were the tools through which you could practice being a Buddhist or not being a Buddhist, mm. right? Mm. So the kinds of music you put on to create an acoustic environment, right? So I, I looked at nuns like trying to like control sound, building in sound muffling and amplifying systems, like, you know, nuns with soundboard, acoustic mixes, like trying to produce mm. temple sound, right? What does it mean to produce a temple soundscape? That's the kind of media. Yes, they would watch Keanu Reeves' movie about the Buddha, you know, but they would read it as parable in a very different way. So there was other ways in which it was really about the ways in which media objects were the targets of bodily and sensorial practice rather than as something that is just content, which it was. It's never not content, but it's about the ways in which that is engaged with is what my research was about. Two things stood out when you were talking about the belief and then practice. It's interesting that those are two separate things because the way I operate if I believe in something, then I practice that. But then I've also seen where your organizations have clear missions towards you know, certain goals, but then there's this divide when it comes to practice seeing that. So when you distinguish that, I was like, oh, okay. Also, some of the things that you were saying about your research and how these Buddhists approach media and use media for practice really remind me of a lot of some of the things that are happening in what we now call the impact space mm -hmm. and how people are you know, using films to make change. And it's not just this commodity to be looked at from a voyeuristic standpoint. I'm going to mention Bill Maher, who are really... Ooh, complicated. Last week, I didn't watch this week because he had that woman on. But this week, <laughs> he had somebody on who I'm not going to mention. I'm not going to say her name. But last week, he, in his um, new rules section, he was talking about all the Oscar nominations and how a lot of them are downers. Some of his criticism, like, was not valid at all, you know. But he did bring up the fact that he says a lot of liberals prefer, like, really light downer movies because they can feel bad about something then not have to like do anything about it. To push it even further beyond the impact space, like what does it mean when filmmakers see themselves as on a mission? Mm. Like when they pick up the camera, who are they crafting themselves? Yes. Um, mm -hmm. I, as an anthropologist, I would say, yes, they are. They definitely are. Um, and uh, 
but that element of it is, is fascinating to me because for me, like picking up a camera and engaging in media production, you know, and this is where I also served as a projectionist in grad school. Mm. So one of the things that I, I used to joke about is, you know, if it's less than three hours long, either is in focus or has good sounds, I will probably be able to make my way through it. A lot of the production of media that is significant in the moment in the community in which it is made doesn't travel or produces work that is almost in, uh, unintelligible to viewers who are trained up in a different set of film language to understand what's happening on screen. Mm, mm -hmm. And, you know, this is more than just, I think, cultural difference. I think this is literally like, what does it mean when the camera can never move to the women's side of the Buddha hall? Because I, as the embodied position subject, cannot. Or, you know, in some Australian spaces, like, what does it mean where certain people cannot no longer be rendered once they've passed, mm. right? Like these kinds of, or, and um, these kinds of ethics that are part of the context in which the media was made, the people were engaging in the recording, the cultural practice of making media so that there is a sense of collective history, oral history that's being passed on, mm -hmm. the importance of testimony, like these kinds of elements that when it gets rendered in linear and edited down, it becomes a very different experience for people who are watching it projected on screen versus physically present and participating in that space. Right. And that's where we hit up against the limits of that kind of um that kind of work. Right. But I also think about the ways in which the kind of work that happens just seems so obvious to us is befuddling when it encounters the world. I just remember having a conversation and this was many, many, this was over 20 years after he moved to the United States. One of the things that I always remember him saying was this like American television, like why do they keep teaching you how to wash your hair? Cause it's like every single commercial was a shampoo commercial, right? And he's like, he's like, I don't care how to wash my hair. I know how to wash my hair. And it's just sort of, it was one of those moments where it's like, yeah, where do we put the attention? What do we just gloss over? Right. But what is actually just part of our expectation yeah. of the, and our world and how that would be incredibly boring mm -hmm. and completely not speak to any audiences who would not be into that. Particularly American media is so pervasive. <laughs> I don't know if the word is pervasive, but when you travel, I mean, I, here's the thing, you know, traveling overseas, I could always, wherever I went, wherever country, I could, I'll turn it on, flip on the channels, and I could always find Charmed somewhere. But I'll, and then also like Star Trek, which I don't mind. I can watch Star Trek in any language. There's so much America media out there. I wonder how much of that influences like content creators in other countries. But then thanks to, and I, I'll, probably never say this about this company except for this but thanks to like entities like netflix and hulu we actually are getting access to like content from other countries netflix has so many great k-dramas and like i watch shows on there from israel things i never would have like had the you know, opportunity to see this globalization and this you know the surge of american stories going overseas but like it's now i don't know if it's completely shifting but it's it's good that we're getting access to other media and which gives you a great look at insight into other cultures and um, other folks around the world and how they see things. For me, you know, one of the things that's really interesting sort of from the outside is thinking about the ways that a global streamer like Netflix imagines their audiences, mm -hmm. how they segment or not. Yeah. And, you know, I think past previous sort of national audience conceptions is, is um, it's very different. And I think for me, like it's very exciting. Some of the most exciting things for me about Netflix are on the level of the platform. It has to do with the fact that 
you know, if not audio description, there's multi-language subtitling. Like that's a standard. Shout out to Ursula Liang's uh, Down a Dark Stairwell. But I, I think that might be literally one of the very first independent documentaries that is primarily in English that is subtitled in Chinese. So there's a Chinese language version. Like the first time. Um, don't quote me on this, but my, I have not found another one. And I'd be very curious to find out which one would be prior. So, you know, let me know, uh, you know, uh, audience members, let me know. Or, or, yeah, you know, um, but as a doc that was broadcast on public television and is now streaming for a little bit, it speaks to the killing of a Kai girl, a girly and the Asian American cop who was, who suffered consequences of that killing and the, the complex unfolding of that um, in New York City. And really sort of one of its, my, from my understanding, you know, um, the filmmaker really wanted audiences who primary language was not English to watch it. And public media should be for all people, should be inclusive for all people, you know, closed captioning, great, but that was a long time ago. Audio description is, you know, still not yet standard. And certainly Chinese subtitling, the fact that in 2021, it was the first time that, you know, something was Chinese subtitled um, for intentionally for a Chinese speaking and reading audience um, for something that is of so such paramount importance in terms of how do we build a diverse multiracial society, you know, within the shadows of white supremacy, within the systems of policing that come out of America's particular racist history, right? Like to become an American is to, there's a lot of things, but one of the things that I think is really interesting for me is that when people of the world come to the United States and if they become legible as POC, they're assumed to be in the minority when oftentimes their alignments may not have been minoritarian at all when they were, you know, they were part of a hegemonic class. They were part of empires. They were part of, you know, and, and, and there's no reason to assume that that's the case until they encounter the white supremacist system that is the United States, I guess. And so for me, like this was a really powerful film that is exactly, you know, needs all kinds of language captioning to make it accessible for all new Americans, because that is also one of the great glories of the American experiment is that it puts forth the promise that you too can be American. There are places in the world where you can be born in that place, your parents could be born in that place for five generations back and you still are not a legal entity in the eyes of the state or the country, right? That seems, I don't want America to become that by stripping people of birthright citizenship, but that's something that America has, you know? And as part of that, I think the flip side of that is the kinds of responsibilities that we all have to that. And that for me is sort of what I have in my mind when I'm thinking about the films that I want to program and thinking about the films that I want to put forward on the airwaves. I want to draw people's attention to, to think through sort of the complexities of both our history, the present, and sort of the kinds of promises that we can make good on. And I don't think they're pyrrhic, but I don't think they're just given anyway. You know, I think you have to claim it and I think you have to assert for it. And I think when you assert for it, you have to make sure that you assert for it on grounds that doesn't burn it down for the next crew coming coming through behind you. Well, when you talk about um, you know the the mission of of PBS, but also the promise of America, which is something my my grandfather would 
always say, because he always kind of maintained faith in that, <laughs> that promise. And maybe think back to the conversation that Renelle and I recorded with Claire Aguilar, because she was there during the early days of ITVS. And back then they didn't call it inclusion, they just diversity. That was clearly part of their mission to get these voices that had not been seen on the air. And also that was the purpose of PBS. You know, it was a an entity that provide a public service to like all its citizens. So I want to talk a little bit about the work that you do um, as a coordinating producer for America Reframed. And we do have overseas listeners. So for, for those folks, can you talk a little bit about like your role and then what America Reframed does? Yeah. So uh, my role as the coordinating producer is sort of, it's like what any producer does in many ways is like, uh, do what it takes to make sure that it gets done, that the show goes on, that all the communications are set up in a way and all the assets are coming in and all the things are going out in ways that ensure that the broadcast happens, that things are going smoothly. And so there's it's both a large team and a small team that are behind America Reframed. There's three full-time staff who work on America Reframed, and that's it. There are a lot of people who work on the show, you know, in the partnership, but in terms of full-timers, it's three people. And we broadcast weekly. We acquire up to 26 new films a year, and they have to, you know, run through all the credits and you know, deliverables for, for broadcast, and then they have to get promoted, uh, packaged, you know, and then broadcast, right? So America Reframed is a weekly independent documentary series that's broadcast on public television's world channel. When the United States joined the rest of the world in allowing for digital broadcasts, what that meant was that what had previously been one channel, one station, all of a sudden could one station could broadcast around three channels or so. Um, and so public television is having one of the largest and strongest sort of uh, terrestrial network of uh, broadcasting antennas. When it switched over to digital, it produced the opportunity where different channels could come and live within sort of the public television ecosystem that's already been set up. Mm -hmm. And so there's the lifestyle channel like Create, and then there's the PBS Kids. And uh, World Channel, you know, All Arts is another one in New York where it's like 24-hour arts programming and it's a fantastic channel. And then there's also World Channel, which is public television's 24-hour news and documentary channel. And so it's all news, all docs, all nonfiction, all the time. And America Reframed is the, uh, the flagship strand on that channel. And we're broadcast every week on Tuesday nights and streaming, but geo-blocked to the United States. Okay. All right. yeah. And um, and how long have you been there? Well, let's see. I've been there since around season five or so. We are now in season nine. So I joined the tail end of season five. We're midway through season nine. And next year is our 10th season. Are y'all planning some celebrations for the 10th anniversary? There's some very exciting films that I'm looking forward to being part of the, uh, the decade sort of uh, season. But you can't say yet. So, I can't say yet. I can't say yet. But um, but it's no, it's exciting because you know it's for independent filmmakers. America Reframe becomes another national strand within public television. Um, up until very recently, there had been two. You know, before the invention of America Reframe, more or less, there had been two. Um, um, there was Independent Lens and POV, and with America Reframed was a third national strand that was added to the mix. And then, of course, since then, there have been other strands like Real South and, you know, Real Midwest and, you know, uh, 
Um, but I think as a as another national strand for independent filmmakers that are released into this public television system, I think filmmakers, you know, it's one thing to have your show on PBS uh, because every local station is a PBS. So you can have a local broadcast uh, with a local station. But unless you're on a national strand, you're not going to get the pickup across the hundreds of channels that are all broadcast PBS. Um, and same with World Channel, which has over 170 partner you know, stations that broadcast World Channel around the country. And America Reframed is also found on like satellite television now and you know, all sorts of places that aren't just on World Channel. Um, you know, though that is our home and our, our place of premiere. But your question was more sort of like, well, what, what is it that I do? I mean, yeah, what it, yeah, I, yeah, what do you, yeah, well, you, 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 you said it, you, you, you are responsible for getting folks to the finish line. <laughs> and, yeah, 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 exactly, you know, and also working with filmmakers to make sure that they know what's going on and coordinating with the filmmakers. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I have the opportunity, and that was why, um, uh, I think, you know, uh, I have the chance to meet you was, you know, part of a broader initiative to, um, in which America Reframed always had from its start, which was, you know, engaging with uh, regional diversity as well of, of its makers, right? So diversity in front of and behind the camera, of not just stories that are told um, by makers along the coasts, but stories by makers all over the country. Um, and I think, you know, that was why I was at Big Sky taking meetings and listening to pitches. For folks who don't know, regional filmmakers is a phraseology that really um, speaks to filmmakers who particularly aren't in L.A. or New York. Not even the coast, but just not in L.A. or New York. So everybody else is regional, which I feel like we need to come up with a different name for it because like, you know, New York is a region and LA is a region <laughs> too, but that that's what we got right now. But, the, but there are filmmakers like um, in the South and the Midwest um, who, because they aren't in these media centers, don't have um, the access um, that a lot of filmmakers who are based in New York and LA have. So there's actually the past few years, there's been a, ongoing throughout the documentary community effort to nurture that content and create a larger platform for that that, that content. That's why I was representing America Reframed um, at Big Sky. And because we're, you know, constantly on the lookout for filmmakers who want the opportunity to get that national audience through a public television broadcast. And, you know, and I think that's one of the really interesting things is that, you know, broadcast is changing. You know, um, I feel like with films and televisions, event television, right? Like, what does it mean to, you know, the a sense of time that's unfolding at the same time, right? Because I see how I'm increasingly consuming media. You know, I have interns who literally, who have never had a television that was connected to an aerial antenna before. And when they connect the aerial antenna to the television, they're delighted by the fact that they can just leave something on a channel and they don't have to pick what to watch next. Somebody really? else has already done that. Seriously, oh yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, they, they marvel at this. Some, some, some marvel at this, you know, they're like, 
wow, like I could just get this and I don't have to subscribe. I don't have to like borrow somebody's login. I can like just turn to what I'm like, yes, yes, that is what television is. So, So, you know, and so, so the question then is what, what is that kind of, if that's the technology and the platform and the uniqueness of broadcasting, right? Like what can it accomplish? And what can, and is that in alignment with what documentary seeks to accomplish? Right. And that's a different set of questions that I'm not, you know, that I've, I've started to think about, but I don't, I haven't reached any conclusions yet, but I, 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 I do think that what does it mean to have an event-based television mm-hmm. show, a television show that's a weekly show that somebody can tune in yeah. every week at a certain time to sit and watch a story about a different part of the country right? that explores both the past, the present, and the future that isn't bound to a particular style or form of talking head or not talking mm-hmm, head that mm-hmm. has diversity in content and stuff. You know, I think it's like, what kind of audience are we thinking of who would be interested in this? And that's something that I think about when I'm watching films and assessing films, because there are films that I love, mm-hmm. want to fight for. And, you know, as in all programming decisions, it's not one person who gets to decide. It's, you know, it's a, it's a collaborative process of, you know, convincing others the value that whatever it is that's being deliberated brings to you know, the platform. Right. And I think so many filmmakers have no idea how many allies that they have within the system Mm, mm. because we're not allowed to talk about it really okay you know um but we're just not like you know like (laughs) not not allowed to talk about it but like you know because it's sort of like there are some films that i would you know like the programming this conversations which i i know is it's thrown like we have these conversations literally it's like does this fit our mission at america reframed right like that is that is at the center and the forefront right. of our minds whenever a film makes it to the final rounds of conversation. And there are films that make it that we all get very passionate about, either for or against. And, and it's that active way of saying, you know, yes or no, you know, and because ultimately that's the decision and there are films. And then the ones who say no, they, you know, they don't know how passionately people have fought for them. Right. They only get the no when they said, sorry, you're not being programmed. Right. Right. Um, and that's the thing. And it's like thinking about it in terms of the long durée. It's, it's, it's like, you know, like, and that's why sustainability, I think, is so important is that because until you can, you know, have enough work, have the opportunity to make a second, third, fourth film so you can chop it around, those people who supported you the first time around won't have the opportunity to support you a second or third time around. That, that's one of the things that, you know, exists on the back end where it's like when people say gatekeepers, it's like, no, it's people like you and I trying to make a difference with the systems that they're in, changing the systems, you know, when they can, but also advocating for the inclusion of things. I mean, that's true. Like when you, when you speak about the, the allies piece, because, you know, as someone who's been on like a bunch of different review committees, but also where I worked, I ran the fiscal sponsorship program. And there's certain films that you, you, end up having a deep love for, you know, just because maybe it's something, it's bringing something to light in history that you didn't know about and you're just in complete awe or they're telling the story in a very unique way. And you do look for ways to like, to help those folks, you know, try to make connections. And I know um, when I've been on review committees or even like when I met with filmmakers in the field and mentored them, you know, I will keep certain films on my radar. And if I see a particular grant or something that's like relevant to them or a particular story, I'm like, hey, you know, I'll be in touch. I take a look at this because like you do want them, you know, do the, what 
them to succeed. So maybe they may not get the money or they may not get the broadcast, but you still hold those projects in your heart and try to do the little bit that you can. Yeah, but I think that's, you know, for me, that's certainly what's kept me in it. You know, I, I think, uh, and I think it's, it's really interesting because back when I was, back when I was in the classroom and I was teaching, the kinds of impact that you had or the kinds of the outcome of every lecture of every course that you taught, you know, every semester was very visible and the kinds of students that would be drawn to your teaching, your courses, and, you know, the kinds of papers that would grow and complexity of, you know, like those were all very fulfilling in, in the classroom. And then you know, engaging in sort of the more professional side of academia, of publishing, you know, like the kinds of conversations that you could be a part of. It's really interesting because I see, I, I came into the documentary field, um, my current place in the documentary field is one as a gatekeeper, but mm -hmm. I certainly have always occupied that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, you, you're, you are a filmmaker. Too. Yeah, I've, exactly. Mm -hmm. I have, I have in, in my past, I've made films and they, I've, um, and it was always, I remember the first time when you make a film and then you sort of try to get people to watch your film and then you try to pitch your film and then you try to get distribution for your film and it's all very opaque you know and i think there's a constant and i think just there's a constant learning curve that new filmmakers have to engage in and i think that's part of you know it's, it's no mystery part of um becoming important in the <laughs> industry is sticking around yes you know mm -hmm. and i think that's why all of these you know second film projects all of these funds to like promote sustainability for the the pipeline of you know um first time or quote unquote emergent filmmakers it's sort of like no like what happens when you know like filmmakers of color who have been in the industry forever and ever still can't get funding yeah you know? or it's their it's their 10th film and they are still being categorized as emergent filmmaker like that's a structural issue um that there are few, not enough people who have been able who have come in and they've circuited out because they just couldn't sustain it. And that's the case in a lot of industries, but it's something that I, I think about how it becomes racialized in, in our present moment. Have you seen uh, Raul Peck's Exterminate All the Brutes yet? First of all, okay, it's utterly, utterly brilliant. It's on HBO. It's a four-part series about an amazing director, Raul Peck. And um, it is a hybrid documentary based on three books, which I'm only going to remember one of them is I think the indigenous history of the United States and then like two other ones. It really, it goes deep into the origins of white supremacist thought and white supremacist action and how it has impacted the various folks of color in this country and impacted history and how we keep repeating these stories. And it's a, a definite challenge because, I mean, Peck is just brilliant in um, showing like these contrasts because there's this, he shows this scene from this movie with Gene Kelly and Frank Sinatra. And they're singing this song that's essentially like mocking indigenous ways. And then there's this voiceover where he's talking about how how white supremacy extracts cultures and, and destroys cultures and you see gene kelly like happily s singing and you know with like horns in his nose and it's like oh because you know we love gene kelly singing in the rain but <laughs> he does this he's just brilliant and like and showing these contrasts and then there's one scene too where um josh hartnett who kind of plays like the white the white racist in the film like throughout centuries 
and he's watching this very tattered American flag in the water. And in the distance, he sees people marching. And but the people marching are like the white supremacists from the Charlottesville. And they're just saying, like, Jew, you would not replace us. Jew would not replace us. So showing that this is the same energy. This is the same thing. One of the films that I want you to watch is um, is going to be broadcast um, in May on America Reframe. I mean, we have a number. We, I, we love our films equally. We do. Um, I do. I do. I love all of them. And that's, you know, and so there are three films broadcasting. Far East, Deep South, sort of the unexpected history um, in the Deep South that an Asian American filmmaker finds when he starts looking back into his family tree. Curtain Up, which is looks at a, a school in New York's Chinatown, um, their after school theater club, um, are invite, invite, invited to perform premiere sort of the uh, Frozen Kids, you know, um, a musical. We have an encore, which is also really great. It's first vote. And then we have the last uh, film in May is uh, Hamtramck USA, which looks at the first what, you know, national media presents it as the first Muslim majority city, but it sort of goes behind that and look, sort of looks at on the ground campaigning and what a campaign in a small town looks like, or a small town in a small town can be near Detroit, right? But it's the town of Hamtramck. So, um, and so there's a number of films that are part of sort of the May lineup for America Reframe that are really fantastic. One of the films that is truly amazing, and I think, you know, in, in the way that only films about kids can be amazing is sort of like their perspective on the world and the world that they're they're encountering and thinking through and parroting and challenging. And I think that's something that you really see in, in Curtain Up in, in a really fantastic way. I saw an early cut of Curtain Up and I loved it. And there's this one, I don't know if this particular scene was kept in the film where there's one scene where this little boy, he's talking about how his mother, I think he wants to grow up, he wants to be an actor. like. He's, he's definitely a performer. He's saying like his parents don't want him to do that. They want him to get a real job. Then he tells his mother, well, you watch all these like dramas on TV. They have jobs. Like, that's what I want to do. And like, that kid is sassy and telling the truth. And all the different parenting styles that you see that challenge expectations about what parenting is and sort of, and the commitment and care. And I also want to talk about First Vote because I saw earlier cuts of that. And then um, I do impact producing. I did a little bit with their impact campaign, developing the impact strategy. I remember when I first saw it, it made me really angry because it has these like new Chinese American immigrants who are pro the orange menace. I refuse to say his name. I remember I was screaming at the screen. <laughs> But then it also shows Chinese Americans who have been here for generations who are on the other side. Even though it's showing these incredibly contrasting political beliefs, when you finish the film, I, I, I understood, okay, why these new Chinese American immigrants were supporting Trump based on their experiences, you know, living in China and based on their thoughts. Now, I completely disagree, but I understand. <laughs> That's the brilliance of that film. And then I'm just excited about Far East, Deep South because yeah, I'm born and raised in the South. I remember, well, growing in Augusta, Georgia and 
Um, Augusta used to be the capital of Georgia back in the day, like 200 years ago or whatever. It was on the railroad. And there is actually a large Chinese American population in um, Georgia that's been there for generations. When I watched the Asian Americans, it actually made me go look up like, well, how long have like Chinese Americans been in, um, in Georgia? And it's been since um, 1873. That's when the first um, Chinese men were brought to build the railroad. And then I didn't know this, but they create all these like various societies and grocer societies. And it's like, oh, okay. I'm very excited about um, Far East, Deep South. That's one of the things where it's like, it's, it's a real pleasure to have continued opportunity to work with the filmmakers. And, you know, and, I, and, and then, and also, you know, like broadcast is one point in the life of their film, you know? And, and I think it's this question now, I think after 2020, we're all like, you know, how can you live well thrive and your films live well and thrive no one person is going to take care of your film your baby it's like it's it's like people need to come together you know what's really funny working in the you know because i started getting into all of this when i was like when i first studied abroad in china and i was really interested and i was taking photos back in the day when of like images of china that were never the representations of china that i saw here in the united states like that was where i got into sort of anthropology as a whole was through that and, um, and so for me, like it, I've always been about the visual and the, the tactile, like the taste of vodka, how like the needle moves through, like in sewing, very haptic. The power of language is really powerful. And I think, you know, whether it's in podcasts, but also in writing is that I think the best thing that a filmmaker can do is to get really good copy. And that's weird because sometimes there are really good copy and it's not very good films and vice versa. What we approximate is never what we encounter. So I, you know, I think since the industry has been professionalized, Netflix won't take pictures from doc fakers without agents, right? Like there's this whole apparatus of language to talk about the work and a work to look a certain way. And the work that looks a certain way that is talked about a certain way that sounds compelling on paper. I'm sure you've had the experience where you're like, this looks great, this sounds great. I wanna support this. You go and watch it and you're like, oh, no, no, not at all. In other films, you're like, mm, whatever, I have an extra spot, you know, I have some time, I'm gonna watch this film. And you're like, oh my gosh, this copy completely does not capture the depth and complexity of what was being rendered on screen. Shows to me the power of words and also the importance of visual medium. And to make the two come together always, it's good, but it's not always good. Robert encourages all of us to rethink our relationship to media. Is it media for consumption or is it a way to engage with our lives to create a greater self and cultural understanding? How media is viewed really goes to the heart of the programming choices that the industry makes. And being cognizant and conscious of these assumptions and biases of the role of media is the key to making real and actual changes. Because if you see media as something to be consumed, then you may choose to support programming that is extractive and ultimately harmful. Also, how can anyone speak honestly about sustainability in the field when the industry forever regulates BIPOC filmmakers and those who work on the industry side as emerging and in need of development despite their wealth of experience that sometimes surpasses their white peers? It seems as though there is this unspoken assumption that is still very powerful. When Emily Rooney spoke so condescendingly to BIPOC filmmakers and co-conspirators in that interview, what I heard was quality equals white. 
good equals white. This mindset is replicated and repeated on an industry side in small and large ways, from the giving of special treatment in the name of good customer service to white money filmmakers, to how funding and broadcasting decisions are made. Until organizations get serious about ensuring equity in the day-to-day -day interactions with filmmakers, then the mission is just a set of words. Thank you so much for listening today. In our next episode, we head to Boston, where we speak with curator Abby Sun about her work with the Dockyard and distribution advocates. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe on all your podcast platforms. When you give us that five-star rating, it helps to make people more aware of our podcasts. Visit our website at whatsupw.com. That's whatsupw.com. And make sure to sign up for our mailing list to get the latest show news. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at whatsupwdocs. Again, that's whatsupwdocs. And remember, keep telling your stories. Today's episode was hosted by Tony Bell and produced by Ronell Schubert. Music is by Sierra Thomas. The What's Up with Docs team would like to acknowledge the traditional, ancestral, unceded territory of the Chumash and Tongva on which we are recording this podcast. 